Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Um, and we're going to be continuing our reading of the stories and novels of Philip K. Dick. And today's episode, we'll be looking at Imposter. Um, Imposter was first published in Astounding in June 1953. So uh, this is part of that year of 1953 where Dick published about two dozen stories or maybe more. So about one or two are coming out every month. Um, I think some ones even had three coming out in a variety of different science fiction uh, literary magazines, which were, of course, so popular at the time. Astounding is one of the most prestigious. So this was a, a big sell for, for Philip Dick. Um, it's currently located uh, in a variety of places, uh, but uh, probably most commonly read in the second volume of the Collected Stories of Philip K. Dick uh, under the title We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, which is, of course, the story that was the route for uh, Total Recall. Um, so that, that's, that's where you can probably find it today. But I think it's in some other anthologies as well. Um, so let's go right into it. What happens in this story, Imposter? Well, our, our main character is a man named Spence Ullman, and he wants to take a vacation after 10 years of working on a project with his wife, Mary. Uh, there's a war ongoing with the Outspacers, and it hasn't, um, it's still going on. It's, it's something Dick explores a lot in his early stories, which were these long, prolonged interplanetary wars um, going on for generations. Um, but there's, there's been this development of the Protecto Bubble, which is protecting the city, so they're kind of like these bomb-proof bubbles over the cities of Earth. So while the war is going on, it's kind of the damage has been neutralized somewhat. Um, the weapon that will push the war in a positive direction is still undeveloped, but Ullman is sure that Earth has no immediate danger. Uh, so he's ready to kind of take a break from, from his scientific work. A colleague, Norman, comes with an older man who turns out to be Major Peters. Peters is from the government security agency, and he tells Ullman that he will be arrested for being an outspacer spy. Peters reports on the arrest to his superiors as they depart for the base on the moon. And here we get a kind of a shout out to Second Variety, which also has a, on, a, a long-standing war and um, leadership hiding out in the moon. Peters takes some time to explain that Ullman will have to be quickly destroyed by a team of specialists. Ullman is very confused by this, uh, basically being told he has to be destroyed, and he desperately wants to inform his wife of what has happened. Peter explains that they got reports from the Prototech bubble uh, that it was infiltrated by a robot with a U-bomb, which would be set off by the utterance of a certain phrase, right? So I don't know if you've seen that Futurama episode where there's a bomb put in Bender and like the right word will explode it. Um, and I think they can't disarm the bomb, so they just have to change the word at the end, which is, which is kind of funny. Um, but here it's that same kind of concept that the robot doesn't know it's a weapon, but when it says one word or, you know, some, some series of events happens, it'll explode. Um, the robot killed Spence Ullman, taking over his identity, he's told. Ullman insists that he's not a robot. 
he tells Nelson and Peters that the robot must have never reached him. Uh, been, and it's just the reports that he's been taken over, but that mission was never accomplished. Peters clarifies that the robot would not know that he has been taken, that he's taken over the role of Ullman. He would become, quote, body and mind Ullman. And since he would become the, the target. Ullman asked for a doctor to prove that he's not a robot. And, you know, basically, I'll do the medical test. You can take my blood, whatever. Prove, I'll, I'll, I'm willing to prove that I'm not the robot. And they refuse. Ullman bluffs Nelson and Peters about setting off the trigger. And they flee the ship, and Ullman takes the ship back to Earth. So he's going to go back to see his wife. He contacts his wife on Earth and tells her to contact Dr. Chamberlain or any other doctor to go to the house with equipment that will prove that he's a human. Chamberlain uh, was the doctor attached to Ullman's project when he was still on it. When he goes into his house and sees his wife, Ullman knows that the secret police have already intercepted her. He fears that they will assume that she's a robot as well. He flees to a nearby forest. Peters arrives and insists that Ullman is delusional to think that he's a human, telling him that he will be destroyed on sight once he is discovered. The entire country is being scoured for... Um, the entire countryside is being scoured for for Ullman, and he only has about six hours to escape. If he could find the outspace ship that the robot was originally sent in, the one that you know was sent to replace him, he could prove that he was a human, he thinks. He assumes that the ship would be on its way out, out in an out-of-way place near his home. He guessed that it might be the Sun Woods. So that's where they think they're going to go. So Peter's... Um, well, Ullman locates the outspace out, out ship. Um, Peters and Nelson intercept him. Nelson is about to fire at Ullman, but Peters decides to give him a moment to prove he's telling the truth. Ullman points out the body in the ground that looks humanoid, but on closer inspection, it looks like a broken machine. Peter begins telling Ullman about um, his much-needed vacation when Nelson notices that the broken robot was actually killed with an outspace knife driven into its chest. And just as Ullman realizes that the body is, in fact, the remains of the real Ullman, not a robot, the bomb goes off, triggered by some of the robot's final words. We can look at what those final words are. Um, so, Ullman was trembling. This is from the story. Ullman was trembling. His teeth chattered. He looked from the knife to the body. This can't be Ullman, he said. His mind spun. Everything was whirling. Was I wrong? He gasped. But if that's Ullman, then I must be... He did not complete the sentence, only the first phrase. The blast was visible all the way to Alpha Centauri. So that, that's actually how the story ends. So one of those words is the, is the trigger. Okay, so what to make of this story? Well, Dick wrote about this. Yeah, he, these collected works have some of the comments he made on these individual stories. Not many. Most, most of the stories he was pretty sound about. Uh, but once in a while, a story he felt, usually if they were anthologized during his life, he would write and he wrote like little introductions um, or liner notes, sort of passages about these stories. And here's what he writes about Imposter in 1976. Here was the first story of the topic, am I a human? Or am I just programmed to believe I'm a human? When you consider that I wrote this back in 1953, it was, if I may say so, a pretty damn good new idea in sci-fi. Of course, by now I've done it to death. But the theme still preoccupies me. It's an important theme because it forces us to ask, what is a human and what isn't? Now, Dick is right that it introduces the theme well. Um, 
But the story doesn't really go into the question of how you could test if robot Allman or Allman, you know, has human characteristics. Now, if we read this through the lens of Dick's later stories, by then we have the tools to test this claim if, if one's a human. Here it's just an impossible puzzle, right? The only way they can solve it is actually physically finding the body of Ullman to know he's been replaced. Later on, there's going to be this idea that, yeah, there are tests, there's clues, there's hints. What is troubling in imposter is the realization that Ullman is both capable of massive destructive capacity, yet could be morally human. He acts with many of the characteristics of humanity. He's got a desire for self-preservation. He has concern for his wife. He risks his life to try to find out if his wife is okay. He has concern for his community. He, he works on a project. He's trying to save the community, trying to win the war. He has an ability to adapt to his situations. Um, he has a, he, he's able to use tricks. Uh, like when, he, for instance, he gets away by playing with the idea that he really is the robot, and he uses that as a threat to get out of the original confinement. Uh, so he's, in many ways, not very robotic at all. In fact, Dick wants you to think that, until the very last sentence, of course, that Ullman's right, that he has been framed, or that you know he wasn't replaced and he's really a human being. There's no really, when you read back in the story, there's no clues that, oh, you know, there's that sentence there, or there's that line, or there's that thing he did that proves early on he was a robot, and a careful reader could have figured that out. Um, none of that really exists, I don't think. He is such a convincing avatar that the agent of the secret police is even fooled at the end. It seems that the transplanting of the memories into the robot sustains our humanity. Now, this is an idea Dick has. He, he thinks there's really no essential difference between our memories and who we are as a person. So uh, in the story, We Can Build You, you have these Abraham Lincoln robots, right, that have all the memories and experiences of Abraham Lincoln, and they act morally like Abraham Lincoln. They're, they're good people. Uh, so it's really, that's who we are. We're not, it's not the physical mechanisms. This is a central premise, of course, of transhumanism, and it runs deep in cyberpunk literature of this kind of human-machine divide, and that, that there's a moral line there that's not really clear, right? I guess the story goes, you replace your arm. I'm getting this from Transmetropolitan, the comic book, but you replace an arm, you put in a robot arm, you're still a human. You replace two arms, okay, still human. Uh, replace all your limbs with robotic limbs, most people would say, yeah, that's still a human. But what at what point do we start not being human? When we replace the heart? You know, well, of course, Jean-Luc Picard has a mechanical heart in Star Trek. Uh, is it when we start messing with the brains? Well, can't we replace certain parts of our brain with robotics and still be human? Uh, can we upgrade our mind with chips? At what point do we say that person's no longer human? Now, in this early story, Dick displays a lot of his technophobia. Uh, he's never quite grows out of this technophobia, and we've seen it in previous stories I've looked at in this series. He does mature the argument over time, but he pretty much remains a technophobe throughout his career. The potential to translate human consciousness into a mechanical body is perhaps the ultimate in using technology to liberate humanity from its confines. There is even a movement that makes this one of the key concepts called anarcho-transhumanism or libertarian transhumanism sometimes, this idea that real social, economic, human liberation requires technology. We simply can't, in the current technological state, reach a state of total freedom. Um, but Dick doesn't think so. Dick usually thinks technology is something that makes us less human. 
In Imposter, Dick misses this and instead focuses on the inherent danger of technology, in this sense, the military threat of advanced technology. It's the danger that a morally uh, human robot may still be pre-programmed to be a destructive force, right? So there's a kind of a metaphor here. As good as the technology seems on the surface, right, it's deep down, it's still a bomb, right? It's still a threat. So even we, we see the autofact, for instance, as the thing that's going to liberate us from work and labor, well, it's still the thing that's going to destroy us in the end of the day. But these fears do come from a real place, I think. They're not fanciful. They're entirely consistent with the world that Philip K. Dick lived in. The reason war was such a common theme in Dick's early stories was not only because the genre of magazine science fiction liked war and had younger male readers who probably um, enjoyed reading about war and fantasizing about war, uh, but also war was very much in the daily experiences of people in Dick's generation. Uh, he grew up in the context of the Second World War. His earliest writings were published during the Korean War. In the 1950s, there was good reasons to think that war with the Soviet Union was imminent. Um, you know, I know Eisenhower kind of toned down the brinksmanship, but Presidents Truman and Kennedy were um, like to play the brinksmanship game in war, and those were you know major presidents during the life of Philip K. Dick. It's not surprising, therefore, that Dick dreamed up geopolitical backgrounds that were bipolar and based on conflict and war. Um, and not only that, the technological arms race. Uh, he, you know, Dick was also in the Sputnik generation. Ullman's job is to participate in this arms race. Interestingly, although the United States was historically one step ahead of Russia throughout much of the so-called arms race, there were brief periods, especially in the 1950s, that suggested to people that the Soviets would outpace the United States technologically. The Sputnik moment articulated this fear. Uh, now, of course, Sputnik would be four years after the story was published, but fears of Soviet technological progress were a constant theme in Cold War era paranoia. Now, this may be why Dick often put Terra, Earth, in a catch-up position with their enemies. In Imposter, humans had just figured out how to protect their cities from attacks on the outside, and at that very moment, the enemy finds out a way to infiltrate um, the protective barriers. Um, and he's going to reach the ultimate of this narrative of con conflict and technological conflict in what I think is one of his greatest early stories and one I'm going to spend a lot of time on really soon, uh, and that is The Variable Man. And so you can look forward to that, which is going to be like an extra long episode, I do believe. Now, this is the context of Dick's technophobia. The bipolar world, the technological arms race, the threat of war. At the time, who looked at Sputnik and thought about cell phones and instant data transfers? It was much more common to look at Sputnik and think of it as a potential weapon of war. Right? You, if they can put a satellite up there, why can't they put nukes? You know, they can drop on Earth from orbit. Dick thought of technology in the worst possible light because it was being used in some of the most destructive ways possible. Um, so, two ways to read the story. Right. One is, is the, really the first entry into this big part of Dick's canon, the, the what is human question, which I don't want to say he's never explored in the earlier stories, but this is the first time he's kind of come out with this idea that you might have the robot who thinks it's a human and, you know, is it the physical or is it like the morality? Is it the mind? Is it the body? What makes us human? Right. Obviously, we're going to come to the conclusion that it's it's more it's morality it's empathy it's it's somehow an ethical construct that makes one a human 
which is why he gets, he's so interested in the schizoid character, the human who last lacks emotions. Well, that's one way of reading it, and that's probably the most common way of reading this, but I think this is just another piece of evidence into Dick's um, technophobia, his, his Cold War environment, his, his, his anti-war perspective, and some of these other themes that I think are important in his early work. Well, that does it for um, Imposter. Certainly, it's, it's one of the must-reads of Dick's early writings. Um, some of the others, I think, can be bypassed safely, but not this one. you got to read this one if you want to understand Dick's career. Um, thanks so much for listening, um, and I will we'll see you next time. It's not real, it's just a play. And he's playing the part.